a guest here. I'm Pastor Travis. I'm the teaching guy here, and uh, I wanted to uh, say it's nice to be back. I wasn't here last week. I wanted to thank uh, Amato for filling in the pulpit for me. I was actually in Connecticut. I was speaking at the, it's a very long <laughs> group that I was speaking to, the Russian-Ukrainian Evangelical Baptist Union. I say that three times really fast. Uh, and I was able to speak to them, uh, I was a special guest of them, I had a relationship with them, I had a great time, but I missed you, I can't believe how much I missed you guys, and I'm excited to be back with you as we uh, start off our new series, which is called Snapshots in the Psalms. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, hopefully you do, to the book of Psalms, and I'd like to give some preliminary instruction, a little bit of guidance as we get ready to step into this series. Um, why Psalms? And uh, first of all, some of you might even wondered, wanted to know, where is the book of Psalms? Where it's right in the middle of your Bible. And there are some here that I know that aren't familiar. It's not p- p- pronounced Psalms. Just lay that out there, but the book of Psalms. And it's, a, it's the largest book in the entirety of the Bible, consisting of 150 chapters. And they're songs. It's originally songs, poems written by different periods, different individuals, at different points in time, and I, I have to say that I love the book of Psalms. When I first got saved, when I came to know Christ, I, like many of you, looked at the Bible, and it was, where do I begin? I mean, where do you start? I mean, for most of us, when we pick up a book, we start at the very beginning. Some of us have start, tried that with the Bible. You get through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you start slowing down... Numbers, hey, and you figure out, hey, the New Testament seems a lot better. <laughs> Someone directs you, and you're holding on. And, and I know I was the same way, just like some of you. I mean, I grew, up in, I grew up going to church, and yet, and the Word of God was taught, but not as we teach it here, in that the, the pastor didn't have a lot of great training. He was himself, uh, he just had graduated eighth grade. He got saved when he was 40, and he, it was a small country church. God used him mightily in his ministry, but he didn't know the depth of the Word of God, and it's when, after I got saved, I started to want to know, where do I begin? How do I read? I, I don't even know, how, do I read all the Old Testament? Do I read the New Testament? And there's other, these other books, and, and they seem to be different than one another, and your head just swims in all these details. And God brought a really cool little article my way when I first became a Christian. It was on how to have a quiet time. I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know what it meant to have a devotion and commune with God. I knew I wanted to know God, but I didn't know how to do that. And fortunately, it was this pastor that laid out how he pursued God and how he went through the Word of God. And he started off with reading a psalm every day, and he would read it out loud. And so that's what I started to do. And then he would read four chapters in the Old Testament, and that's what I did. And then I expanded on that, started doing five. And, and then he would go to the New Testament and read a chapter in the New Testament. And if you read four chapters in the Old Testament daily... And one in the New Testament, you'll read through the entire Old Testament once in a year, and the New Testament twice. And so I started doing that right when I became a believer in Christ. It was the best spiritual discipline that I could possibly have, because I started to learn these different books of the Bible, and that they are different than one another. And I, and I would go through the Psalms repeatedly, over and over and over. And you know, in reading through some of the books of the Bible, we can relate to some books more than we can others. 
It's just the way that it is. I mean, in Genesis, you've got the story of this, this people that starts off, or it starts off with a covenant man named Abraham, and it, and, and it continues this, what we call a historical narrative, this storyline, and it goes into the law and the exodus, and all of these different things are, are being brought out. But it doesn't always really speak to me personally, where I'm at, and the struggles that I had. And I don't know about you, but when I came to know Christ, I didn't just give up sinning right away. I mean, I still sin to this day. Just not as much as I did then. I mean, when we first come to know Christ, we're like that junior high kid that hit puberty. And if you're in junior high, don't be offended. But it's the kid that has that growth spurt, and his hands and his feet get so big, and he trips over himself because he's trying to figure out how to use it. That's how I was when I got saved. It's like, I got all this new stuff, and yet I still didn't know how to use it. I didn't know how to operate within it. I didn't know how to live according to the truth that was in the Word of God. But one of the books that really nourished me during that period of time was the book of Psalms, because Psalms spoke to me in that it showed the emotion and the feelings that I had. I mean, it's, it's the only book that really shows the, the full spectrum of the human condition, in that you have great happiness and jubilation, and you've got great depth of depression and sadness and confession and repentance and cries of judgment. I mean, the most raw book in the entirety of Scripture is the book of Psalms. It really does show us what it means to live according to the truth of God as we are in that we, we try to order ourselves under the, the word of God and we still have these cries of justice when something goes wrong or these, the depth sorrow of repentance. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. When you know that you've sinned, you've messed up and you are so sad and so hurt and pained and you turn to the scriptures such as Psalm 51 or Psalm 32 and you read David's prayer after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and I see someone who felt like I did. That's what I love about the Psalms. So these next several weeks, we're going to be looking, looking at these snapshots in the Psalms, looking at the depth of different emotion that we have up here. You have hope, forgiveness, anxiety, happiness, pain. We're going to be, going to be examining different Psalms throughout the next several weeks. Now, as I mentioned before, there are 150 psalms. There's not necessarily a progression all the way through uh, in that there, one psalm doesn't build on another. Each one is meant to stand independent. And there are different authors involved, and there's also different length. Today's passage, Psalm 1, we have six verses. And there are some that are very small, which is like Psalm 117. I think it's just maybe one or even two verses, the shortest of all the psalms. And then you have Psalm 119, which is the largest, which is, I think, just spitballing it, I think it's about 176 verses. It's a very long psalm. Now, altogether, all the psalms are called the Psalter. It's not a term we use very often, but that's what it's called. And it was the, sing, the song book, the hymn book, for Israel. Because remember, they were originally songs and poems and compositions meant to aid the people in worship. And just a little aside here, because I've heard people say this, when you're quoting a psalm, it's a psalm singular. So you're, you're not saying, I'm reading from Psalms 1. I'm reading from Psalm 1, because it is a singular. The book entirely is called the Psalms. When you read one singularly, it's called the Psalm. And today, we're in the very first Psalm, and it's, it's not by accident that it's ordered this way. It's to set the stage, to set us in a trajectory of what it means to follow God. 
And it's going, we're going to see there's a contrast here between the wicked and the righteous. And the author, the Holy Spirit, is writing through the psalmist and showing us and offering two choices, two roads before us. And one is, is a, a road that we're going, you could pursue that it's going to end in death and destruction. And the other one is the only road where you're going to experience satisfaction guaranteed. You know, there's a lot of things in the world today, a lot of books that promise satisfaction. And you, you see it all over today because people are trying to find the meaning of life. And no matter how much you might read a book, no book is going to satisfy like the Word of God. It's a book that has endured through time. As scholars is, have tried to understand its meaning, if children have been nourished by its truth, it stood the test of time and it still continues on to this day. There have been those in their arrogance and said that the Word of God will be extinguished in a generation, only to see it flourish and go from people to people across the world. It's the most controversial book. It's the most stolen book, which is pretty amazing. It's the most debated book. It's the most, in some ways, the most hated book, and it's also the most loved book. Because the Bible is unflinching in the truth that it presents to us. It doesn't allow us to bend it the way we want to, but it forces us to place ourselves in line with it. And it promises us that if we do what the Word of God says, then we will find satisfaction. It's guaranteed. So today, I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 1 and to stand for the reading of God's Word as we look into the psalm and see what God has to say to us. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you, Lord, asking to understand your word. Lord, speak your truth to our hearts that we might go forth walking in truth in the, in the one avenue in which satisfaction is guaranteed that we will find in life. So be in our time today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Like I said before, this book is the most controversial book in all of the world. And here we see the psalmist speaking to us about how to live. And it offers two contrasting ways of ordering our life. Now we see here, blessed is the man. We can see sometimes it can even be interpreted, happy is the man. And the man here, it's not just one individual, it's the ideal man. This is the ideal way that we are to pursue if we are to find the satisfaction or delight in God that God has made us to know, which is himself. And he starts off with showing and presenting to us, in essence, a negative. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who doesn't do this. He doesn't do this. In other words, he's offering up these, these three different terms that we can see here. A man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We have some parallels. Walking, wicked. Stands, sinners. Sits in the seat of scoffers. So we see these parallels that are going down. 
that are showing us here, this is the way of the wicked. In essence, this is the way of the, we would say, the world. This is the way of the world. And he's saying here, blessed is the man who doesn't do this. In essence, he's saying, and he's giving unto us, he said, in order for us to have the satisfied life of which satisfaction is guaranteed, it involves us separating ourselves from the world's way of living. If you want to live the life that God has planned for you, you have to separate yourself from the world's way of living. The world and, and, the, and the law of God are completely in, uh, antithetical to one another. They offer up two contrasting, contrasting portraitures of living, completely different from one another. And he says we need to separate ourselves. If we look at it just generally, we have this concept of, of walking, standing, and sitting, and it's a fully orbed picture of how the world lives. And we're not to live like the world does. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, we know that we're not to, to love the world or the things in the world. matter of fact, in the book of James, James says to us, religion that God our Father considers pure and spotless is this, to take care of widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained or unspotted from the world. Now the question is, is what is the world? Now, 1 John, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, I would encourage you to. Uh, if you don't know it very well, it's okay. It's in the New Testament, in the latter part of it. But turn to 1 John chapter 2. Now, we've gone through this many different times, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this passage. But 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, offers up some descriptions of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now James also talks about the world, and he says that we are not to love the world. If we love the world, then that is enmity toward God. It's a declaration of war against God. But what is the world then? I mean, it's not just, I mean, we look at it as this big giant definition. What is it exactly? And, I, and I've given this definition before, but the world is the philosophical values or systems that is completely outside of who God is. It's building a foundation on, in life outside of who God is. In other words, it's anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And we see it all the time. We see it in our schools. We see it in our workplaces. We see it in all these pursuits. We see it on television. And the world is all around us and is constantly trying to shape our mind and give us a direction and sell us the lie of where we are to go and what we are to do, to buy its product, to play on our sinful desires. We have to be very careful from that. We have to separate ourselves from it. And how do we do that? Well, that's what the psalmist is laying out. The only way to do that is by pursuing God's Word. To continually be washing our minds. So, let me, let me break that down a little bit further. And For us to be separating from the world, it involves two things. First of all, it involves separating from specific people. Specific people. And then it involves... Um, separating ourselves from a definite progression, to be aware of this progression. Now, how, does that, how do we incorporate that? Because it's a very controversial thing in, uh, in that we separate from certain people because undoubtedly some will say, did not Jesus associate with sinners? He did. He provided a template for us. But the Apostle Paul also said something that's very appropriate. He says, bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, if we continually inundate ourselves with the things of the world that it affects our spiritual life, 
then we have to separate ourselves from it. It's essential. Jesus wasn't affected in that way. He was able to walk that path without being stained. Now, we have to be very careful. As we do follow Christ, we do engage the world. We want to reach the lost. But we have to be careful lest we ourselves be brought down at the same time. So we must connect or engage the world without compromising who Christ is. And that's not an easy road to do. The church has gone one of two ways in history. Either have gone so far that to withdraw from the world that we become monastic communities. You see that developing within church history. When the church and the world would come almost so intertwined that you couldn't tell one from the other, the church would remove itself and put itself into enclaves away from other people so to purify the Word of God and keep the Christian life pure. But that's not the way that it's supposed to be. We're to be engaging the world. See, this is where the Amish, and I grew up with Amish, so I can speak to uh, the Amish faith, sex. These individuals have said, we are withdrawing from the world, but they've only, it's, it's amazing to me how they've withdrawn from the world, but they've re, they say, we're keeping primitive Christianity alive. But you're really not. Because you're just, you're withdrawing from the world and finding your identity in, in 18th century practices. You're just rooting yourself in that period of time. You're not engaging the world. You're not making disciples of anybody. And Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And you can't make disciple if you're continually cut off from everybody else. That just doesn't work. But we, do must, we must be careful if, the word of, if we see the world affecting our behavior our attitude, how we, what we value, what we laugh at. We have to be very careful in that regard and make sure that we are separating from specific people. And here you have sinners, scoffers. You have the wicked, and then sinners, and then scoffers. And that's the next part there. There's a progression here. Now, some scholars don't see that. I, they don't see a progression. They see them as synonyms, but I, I disagree. And here's why. You see, in the stand, first of all, they're walking in the counsel of the wicked. The word is halach. And in the Old Testament, walking meant something very, very personable. It meant acceptance of another individual. You see individuals like, for instance, Enoch in the book of Genesis. He was walking with God. You see that being referred to throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, the term of walking. Walking in truth. Walking in light. Walking humbly with our God. Walking in love. That's more in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, you see them walking with God, a friend of God. And this walking concept is very prevalent within Scripture. So here, he's saying, first of all, walking in the counsel of the wicked. It means listening to the world's advice and what the world has to say. Taking in the world's thoughts and what the world values. And that can be in a variety of ways. It can be at your job. It can be at your school. Because our educational system is entirely devoid of God entirely devoid of God. And in your workplace, it is too. It's all about competition and results. Not about who we are as individuals. We see that in all of the pursuits and the entertainment that we have, where Christians are continually misaligned and brought up as bumbling oafs. And that's not, that's not true. Some of the greatest thinkers in history have been Christians. But the world tries to throw up Christianity and show the faults and, and let everybody just mock it. Make us look like complete idiots. And the world says, look, here's Christianity. Don't follow that. You want to be a non-thinker? Shuh, be a Christian. And that's not, that's the world. See, the world's trying to present it in a different way. Satan is trying to misalign it so people don't follow 
the truth of God. You see that in music. You see that in popular music artists that, that are throwing pot shots at Christianity and how they perceive, how, then how we are perceived. I think of the Lady Gaga. Everybody's heard of Lady Gaga, this big, huge artist, and her song, Born This Way, talking about homosexuality out there. And people are just lining up. And I've seen different people on uh, social networking sites. People are saying now they have left Christianity and they're embracing homosexuality. And I've seen teenagers doing this online. Kids that I've spoken to and heard them at camp growing up in Christian families are embracing this way of life and embracing this lie. See, that it makes Christianity look foolish and makes and, and even one kid i saw him he put there and he goes he goes uh you have and he i don't even know who he was citing he was just putting it out there for everybody to see he goes you have glenn beck i've got lady gaga and ellen degeneres and i put i wanted to put in the comments so bad i've got jesus period god's testimony on the subject but see it's how the world is making everything be presented and we have to be very careful and even in our, in our entertainment choices and what we're taking in on, from the world, I think of Warren Worsby, he goes, for the life of me, I can't understand why different Christians just get up and the first thing they go to is the news. And I, I have to say I'm guilty of this. I'm preaching to myself here. He says, why do you want to say what, see what the world says about God? How about go to the Word and see what God says about the world first? It's a good perspective. It's a great perspective. What does God say about the world? Because we can get deceived. We have to be on guard because we are to be separating ourselves from the world's way of living. Because there, there is a definite progression that's going on. This counsel of the wicked. And, and the wicked pertains to advice, counsel, ideas that are evil. It means the wicked enjoy persuading others to join in their evil ways in order to justify their own godlessness. And then you have sinners that, that literally missing the mark, erring unintentionally. And there it's more akin to foolishness. But here the word uh, chet refers to, again, missing the mark, but it's, uh, more, it's the word rasha, wickedness, which is a deliberate, deliberate and willful act of rebellion. So at first of all, you have these people that are just wicked in that they're just sinning, maybe unintentionally, and here you have people that are sinning intentionally, and then you've got the next one is the scoffers. These are people that are mocking anybody else that is going against what they believe and value. So there's a definite progression, and I've seen that within several different Christians. They start off very curious, but they start aligning with the, word, the world. They don't want to read the Word of God. Next thing you know, they've now become one of the enemies. They place themselves as an enemy of God. We've even seen that from different individuals from our own fellowship, that people that have left and they said, you know what, I'm going to pursue a lifestyle completely antithetical to the Word of God and value the things of the world. So there's this definite progression that's there. You can see it in walk, stand, sit. First, I'm walking with him. I'm listening to the advice. I'm standing with him. In, in the New Testament, the word stand, as, as Pastor Andrew was sharing in his uh, uh, Adult Bible Fellowship, as Ephesians 6 shows, this word stand is repeated again and again. And it shows then that individuals are aligning themselves with one another. To stand, it's being entrenched. So an individual who is pursuing... First of all, a life away from God or part of the world, they start out just conversing and listening to the world's advice. And then finally, they begin to identify with the world, placing themselves as an enemy of God. And then they become completely antithetical and a leader of those. I mean, scornful. I mean, it's, it's, it's a horrible picture that is being shown here. Something that was contemptuous toward the ways of God. So we're to be separating ourselves 
from these specific people and this progression. Now, we see that we can't pursue the world's way of life. Then what are we to pursue? Well, that's what the blessed man is to do. He's to forsake that, but he's also to pursue something else. Look at verse 2 with me. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. Now, it's interesting here. The law obviously is referring to, and, and we might not be familiar with this. Some of you may and you may not. But the law is referring to the first five books of, of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. That's what the psalmist would have had. And uh, although we see that Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, we see that Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. In that he is the perfect man. He is the only one that is able to fulfill them entirely. So we have to look then at the law of God through the lens of Christ. Because we, we must see that the, the law of God, and it's for our benefit, it's for our blessing, but it's only through Christ that we can find true fulfillment. Because the law was to point us to Christ. That's what it was to do, to show that we can't, by any means of ourselves, fulfill all of the requirements of the law perfectly. That if we fail in one, we failed at them all. But Christ, however, was able to fulfill every aspect of the law. And he is, he is the ultimate promise of God. As I was reading in 2 Corinthians this morning, that all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Because the law and the prophets all made a promise. And it was fulfilled in Christ. So we have to see the law of God and see the greater law, the words of God, the Bible, through Christ. Because the Bible has been given to us for our benefit. Now we are to delight in that. What does that mean, to delight? Well, it means being satisfied, to find our enjoyment in the Word of God, to be satisfied with God's Word. Now, many of us, though, have a hard time. How do I be satisfied with the law of God? Or how do I be satisfied with the Word of God? Well, we are satisfied when we realize what the Word of God is and what it means to us. And, it, and, and let me lay that out, because we look at law, and sometimes when we think of laws, we think they're burdens. I mean, when are laws or rules ever good? But they are good. They're put there for our benefit and our blessing, not to be a giant burden for us. But how then can we be satisfied? How can we delight in God's Word? Well, first of all, we must realize that it establishes for us a foundation. It's a foundation for living. Now, I'm amazed at how many people build foundations for themselves, and they say, truth is to me. Well, that's a foundation that's totally shifting depending upon what emotion you're in, what life experiences you have. You have to have not just a subjective feeling or emotion, but you must have an objective truth upon which to base yourself. And that's where we have a foundation that is immovable, that is endured through time. So when I see religions such as Scientology, John Travolta, Nicole Kidman, Jenna Elfman, these are these celebrities within our world, following Scientology, it makes me laugh. Even Tom Cruise, standing, looked like a complete idiot. Because Scientology, first of all, not only is it satanic, because it is, but it's based upon a sci-fi writer in the middle of the 20th century. I mean, that's just, isn't that crazy to anybody? I mean, here's this guy that says, if you want to make real money, create a religion. And he does. It just makes completely, it's ridiculous to me. And I see these celebrities just spouting off on Scientology. And I'm like, I thought you were you know, a little bit foolish before. Now I think you're, you know, you're, you're the engineer of the crazy train. That's what you are. You've become that because you're just believing something that is just completely fabricated that was made up out of one individual's head. 
And I look at that, same with the Book of Mormon. Here you've got Joseph Smith that is looking in a hat that he won't let anybody else look at, these gold plates, that he can interpret himself. I mean, what was he on? I mean, seriously. I, I even look at, you, you know, you want to talk about the Quran, we could talk about that too, because here you have this guy who's in a cave over a 22-year period of time receiving revelations from an angel over a 22-year period, just he himself, no one else, and no one allowed to question his revelations or they'll be killed. I mean, what's going on here? But here you have the Bible written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period of time. And they're all talking about the same thing, and they're all from different walks of life. That's pretty phenomenal. Testifying to the same truth. You've got kings. You've got, you've got you know, shepherds. You've got, you've got individuals that are you know, of, uh, uh, gardeners. You have all these different people that are testifying to the reality of the same truth. So they give us a proper foundation to live from that has been tried, that, that many others have walked that path and can testify to the validity of the truth that is espoused therein. Not only does it establish a foundation, but it ensures freedom. It ensures freedom. For freedom Christ has set us free, as Paul wrote in the book of Galatians. Now some say, how does the law enable us to be free? Because I, I was talking with my daughter the other day. We were sitting down at the table, and I don't know if she learned this at school or what, but in the middle of dinner, she stands up, and she puts her arms above her head, and she goes, it's a free country, and just runs outside yelling, it's a free country the entire time. And I'm sitting there going, wow, she's right. <laughs> and it was, it was really humorous. And, I, and, and we were talking later, as, as I'm seeing her run back and forth in the window, I, I just didn't understand where it came from. But it illustrated to me a reality that we do have freedom. And, and I was talking with her, and she's like, why do we have all these laws and rules if we're free? And I'm like, we have laws and rules to ensure freedom. To make sure that we continually operate in freedom. I said, imagine being out here on Galena and you decide that you want to drive, if you're heading down that way, and you decide, I don't want to drive on the right side any longer, I want to drive on the left. Now you're free, but now your freedom is going to hurt somebody else. See, the freedom that we have is the law of God enables us to fly down without hurting another individual or ourselves at the same time. See, that's what the law of God is. It ensures us freedom in how to live life. How to love God and to love one another. Remember, the, the, the love of God, we see in the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, and then we have loving other people in the next ones. And those, if you, if you know of anyone, or maybe you yourself have, have violated those, you know just the terror and the pain that it causes, not only to you, but to other individuals. Ask someone who has committed adultery if it has hurt them. Did it hurt them? It not only hurt them, it hurt the spouse. It hurt the, the spouse of the, the other person's spouse that was involved in the adulterous, uh, adulterous relationship. It hurt the children. It hurt different people that came into contact with it. That's what happens. When we violate the law of God, we are saying we know better than God, and we're swerving into the lane, and we're bringing uh, pain to ourselves as well to other people. So that's what he's saying here. Man who delights in the law of God. He's delighting in it because he knows it's ensuring his freedom. It's establishing him a foundation, and it's ensuring him freedom. But it's also empowering him for fruitfulness. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. 
I don't know if you've ever been on a river, you've ever been on the Mississippi, or you've seen these different trees that are just growing upside of it, and they're giant because they continually have the roots that go down and they're being nourished all the time. They continually are growing. And there's a fruitfulness. Its, its leaf does not wither. It produces fruit in its, yields its fruit in its season. It's showing that we are fruitful. When we are in the Word of God, and the Word of God then becomes into us, we'll be fruitful in different ministry. It's, it's, it's essential to have fruitful ministry, to, have, to be in the Word and have the Word in us. As Jesus said in John chapter, 15, verse 5, John chapter 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, it, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do you want to have fruitfulness in ministry? Continually be taking in the Word of God because when you do, it becomes part of you. And it starts transforming you from the inside and then it overflows from your heart to other people. If anybody's been around me for a while, you know I'm a pretty passionate guy. And I take in truth and I love it. And if you're around me for any period of time, it's just going to spill out. Because I love God's Word. And I'm continually drinking it in. And I take that really literally. That If if somebody bumps me, what, what spills out? It's what's in my heart. It's the Word of God because I find delight in it. I find enjoyment in it. The longer that I've read the Word, that's what happens. And I've met other people. Some of you are just like that. It spills out onto other people in different life situations. And you are fruitful. Some say, I'm not fruitful. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you in the Word of God? Are you spending time in the Word of God? And I'm not talking about just one of two verses and go. I'm talking about, see here, it's let it, the man who meditates, it's seeping in. I picture a very hard soil and putting water on it. And you have to break that ground. And the more that you, you keep putting water on it, that's what's going to break it. That's what's going to break it up. And the more you keep saturating yourself with the Word of God, it breaks the hard soil of our heart and gets down to the roots of who we are. And if you're just eating, you know, drive-by Scripture reading. It's better than nothing, but you can't live by drive-by or drive-through Scripture reading. You've got to take a truth and just savor it. Like, a, like if you have a throat, you ever have your throat irritated and you take a throat lozenge and you just suck on it to make your throat better? That's what you do with the Word of God. Savor it. Memorize it. Make it a part of who you are. That's what we need to be doing, to be meditating upon it day and night. Now, it's not saying here, have a quiet time. Nowhere in Scripture it says, thou shalt have a quiet time. But it does say, take up your cross daily to offer ourselves up to the Lord to be living sacrifices. Now, I will say this. No individual that I've ever seen that's been used mightily of God has ever been out of the Word of God for a great deal of time. They're always continually in the Word of God. Now, we also have to remember that to the audience to, that he's addressing here didn't have the written Scriptures like we have. Many of them, had, they, were, they were centered in synagogues, and they would have different scrolls. They didn't just have, you know, they couldn't go get the Zondervan and get the blue cover, you know, Torah and take it home, or the, the one was glow-in-the-dark or the indestructible one. Have you seen that Bible, by the way? 
The indestructible Bible, I mean, really, it, it floats and the pages don't rip. It's for hunters. That's just an aside. You can go buy it later. The point is, are you reading it? Are you applying it to your life? Are you meditating it day and night? Because it empowers us for fruitfulness. It also enables us to flourish. Look at that. In all that he does, he prospers. That's how the psalmist puts it. This is a general promise. It doesn't mean financially. It means prospering spiritually or experiencing the blessing of God or having the Spirit of God evidence in your life that God is favoring you. You are favored inwardly and in, in many ways outwardly. Again, this doesn't mean that you won't go through times of difficulty, but that you'll be blessed in the midst of it. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Psalm 1, wrote this. Years ago, a couple who had gone to China as missionaries used this image to describe their life there after a communist had taken over China at the end of the Second World War. Their name was Matthews, and they were the last missionaries of the China Inland Mission to escape from that country. They were under communism for two years, during which time they lived with their young daughter, Lila, in a small room. Their only furniture was a stool. They could not contact their Christian friends for fear of getting them into trouble. Except for the smallest trickle, their funds were cut off by the government. Heat came from a small stove, which they lit once a day to boil rice for dinner. The only fuel they had was dried animal refuse that Art Matthews collected from the streets. These were indeed dry times. But afterward, when they wrote their testimony... To God's grace, in the midst of such privations, they called their book Green Leaf in Drop Times. How could you say that? Because they were continually finding their nourishment and their satisfaction in God. That in the midst of such difficulties, they found Christ as their satisfaction. They found that those who delight in the Word of God do not wither, but instead produce Holy Spirit's fruit. So being satisfied in God's Word enables us to have a secure foundation, enables freedom, it empowers fruitfulness in ministry, and then enables us to flourish. But it also enables us, enables us to be secure when judgment comes. That we don't have to worry about it when judgment comes. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so. So we already have the righteous contrasted and what it does for us. Now we have the wicked. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives Away. Now, let's look here. What is chaff? It's the outward shell of grain that would be broken down, that, that animals would stomp out, and they would make sure they keep the seed. That's the good part. And the chaff, just the husk they'd get rid of. They'd throw it up in the air because it usually was done on a hill in front of everybody, and the wind would carry the chaff away while the, the grain would fall to the ground. And he's saying this is what the wicked are like. They look like they're going to endure for a while, but the reality is that they're going to be swept away. They're going to perish. That their way is just going to go. No matter how hard they try, no matter how much press they get, how many crowds that they gather, that God laughs at them to scorn. That no matter how much we shake our fist in the the face of Almighty God, it doesn't stop His plan at all. That the world will pass away, along with all of its desires, as we read in 1 John chapter 2. But the one who does the will of God will abide forever. That there is security in the midst of judgment. Because we find our identity in Christ and what He has done. He is our shield. He is our advocate. The chaff are blown away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. John Piper says, 
The word righteous in verse 6 presses us forward to Christ as our righteousness. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So only the righteous will survive the judgment in the end. But who is righteous? Psalm 14.3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 130, verse 3 through 4, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Answers none. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Or Psalm 32, 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So the righteous are the sinful who can somehow be counted as righteous when they are not righteous in themselves. How can this be? How can a holy and righteous God not mark our iniquity? How can a holy and righteous God not count sin? How can He not require perfect righteousness for His perfect heaven? The answer is that God does mark iniquity, and He does count sin, and He does require perfect righteousness. And that is why this psalm, with all of the psalms, leads to Christ, who was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. So the gospel truth is part of the living water that flows to the roots of our lives. This is part of what we meditate on day and night when we read and sing the psalms. It's the source of our sweetest delight. So as we we near the end of our time, we have to ask ourselves, is the Word of God my delight? Let me ask you this question. I have three questions I want to leave with you as we think about this psalm and how to apply it to our lives. The first is this. Are you living according to the world or the Word? What's your standard? Where do you look for guidance? Where is your real delight found? What do you truly look to in times of trouble and adhere and becomes part of you? My second question is this. Are you in the Word? And is the Word in you? It's not about being in the Word. It's about having the Word in you. And the only way that you can have the Word in you is if you are in the Word. The Word of God. The Bible. Are you in the Word and is the Word in you? And lastly, are you separated, satisfied, and secure? The only way that you can be separated, satisfied, and secure is in and through Christ. It's for Christ. It's in Christ. It's finding our identity with Him. Are you in the Word? Is the Word in you? Are you separated from the world that it's not influencing you? Are you satisfied with God's Word? Are you secure that if Christ would come right now, that you would be able to stand in the judgment? Because of Christ, because you are standing with Him. I'd like to to leave with you a a video. We are endeavoring as a church, all three campuses, to be having not only to to get you in the Word, but have the Word in you. So I'd like to show you a video. I'm going to give a a few comments after it, but it's, it's to help us. These are tools that we are giving, and it's a challenge to be, to be as individuals and as families, to be in the Word and get the Word in us this summer. So let's watch this video.
So what we want you to do is we're presenting an opportunity for you this summer to get into the Word. And what you saw there is fighter verses. We're going to have these in different bulletin inserts. We will memorize a verse as individuals and as a family. And then we're going to be quoting them periodically throughout our service um, in the next several weeks. So you can be memorizing what we call these fighter verses that will be included. You'll see them within your bulletin insert. You can get them online. You can even download it if you have an iPhone or an Android app. You can download it online, and I'll have the fighter verses there for you. We also are giving out MP3 CDs in the back uh, for you that you can take and take home and listen to the New Testament. You can go through the entirety of the New Testament, all 279 chapters, if you do 20 minutes a day, five days a week with your family. And that's quite a challenge, and we would encourage you to do that. Now, remember, it's an MP3 player. Some people might try to play in their car, and you don't have an MP3 player in your car. If you do, you can play it. If not, just be mindful of that if you get the CD that we have for you. But we want to make sure that we get you in the Word this summer. We want you to be in the Word. We know you're going to be out about. Some are going to be gardening. Some are going to be a vacation. But don't neglect your walk with Christ this summer. Make sure you are in the Word so the Word of God gets in you and you can live that blessed life that God so desires. So let's close our message time with prayer as we get ready to prepare, or prepare our hearts for communion together. Father, so grateful that you've given us your word, that we might delight in it. Lord, we know that you've given, it, given us a great foundation.